tonight I'm going to continue my reading of the Swan's Way. Okay, got to find my place. Here, here we are. Um, the window overlooking the street and both the doors. But it was no good my knowing that I was not in any of those houses, of which, in the stupid moment of waking, if I had not caught sight exactly, I could still believe in their possible presence, for memory was now set in motion. As a rule, I did not attempt to go to sleep again at once, but used to spend the greater part of the night recalling our life in the old days at Combray with my great-aunt at Balbec, Paris, Doncières, Venice, and the rest remembering again all the places and people that I had known, what I had actually seen of them and what others had told me. At Combray, as every afternoon ended, long before the time when I should have to go up to bed and to lie there, unsleeping, far from my mother and grandmother. My bedroom became the fixed point on which my melancholy and anxious thoughts were centred. Someone had had the happy idea of giving me, to distract me on evenings where I seemed abnormally wretched, a magic lantern, which used to sit on top of my lap while we waited for dinner time to come. In the manner of master builders and glass painters of gothic days, it substituted for the opaqueness of my walls and impalpable iridescence. Supernatural phenomena of many colours, in which legends were depicted as on shifting and transitory window. But my sorrows were only increased, because this change of lighting destroyed as nothing else could have done, the customary impression I had formed in my room. Thanks to which the room itself, but the torture of having to go to bed in it, had become quite endurable. For now I no longer recognised it, and I became quite uneasy as though I were in a room in some hotel or furnished lodgings, in a place where I had just arrived by train for the first time. Riding at a jerky trot, Golo, his mind filled with an infamous design, issued from the little three-cornered forest which dyed dark green the castle, which dyed dark green the slope of a convenient hill, and advanced by leaps and bounds towards the castle of Port Genevieve de Brand. This castle was cut off short by a curved line, which was in fact the circumference of one of the transparent ovals, in the slides which were pushed into position through a slot in the lantern. It was only the wing of a castle, and in front of it stretched a moor on which Genevieve stood, lost in contemplation, wearing a blue girdle. The castle and the moor were yellow, but I could tell their colour without waiting to see them. For before the slides made their appearance, the old gold sovereigner's name of Brabant had given me an unmistakable clue. Golo stopped for a moment and listened sadly to the little speech, relounded by my great-aunt, which he seemed perfectly to understand, for he modified his attitude with a docility not devoid of a degree of majesty, so as to conform to the indications given in the text. He then rode away at the same jerky trot, and nothing could arrest his slow progress. If the lantern were moved, I could still distinguish Golo's horse, advancing across the window curtains, 
swelling out with their curves and diving into their folds, the body of Golo himself being of the same supernatural substance as his steeds, overcame all material obstacles, everything that seemed to bar his way, by taking each as it might be a skeleton and embodying it in himself. The door handle, for instance, over which, adapting itself at once, would float invisibly, his red cloak or his pale face, never losing its nobility or its melancholy, never showing any sign of trouble it such transtubutation, and indeed I found plenty of charm in these bright projections, which seemed to have come straight out of a Merovingian past, and to shed around me the reflections of such ancient history. But I cannot express the discomfort I felt at such intrusion of mystery and beauty into a room, which I had succeeded in filling with my own personality, until I thought no more of the room than of myself. The anaesthetic effect of custom being destroyed, I would begin to think and to feel very melancholy things. The door handle of my room, which was different to me from all the other door handles in the world, inasmuch as it seemed to open of its own accord and without me having to turn it. So unconscious had its manipulation become. Lo and behold, it was now an, it was now an astral body for Colo. And as the dinner bell rang, I would run down to the dining room where the big hanging lamp ignorant of Golo and Bluebeard, but well acquainted with my family, and the dish of stewed beef shed the same light as on every other evening, and I would fall into the arms of my mother, who in the misfortunes of Genevieve Brabant had made all the dearer to me, just as the crimes of Golo had driven me to a more ordinary, scrupulous examination of my own conscience. But after dinner, alas, I was soon obliged to leave Mamma who stayed talking with the others, in the garden if it was fine, or in the little parlour, where everyone took shelter when it was wet. Everyone except my grandmother, who held that it is a pity to shut out, shut oneself indoors in the country, and used to carry on endless discussions with my father on the very wettest of days, because he would send me up to my room with a book instead of letting me stay out of doors. This is not the way to make him strong and active, she would say sadly, especially this little man whose needs all the strength and character he can get. My father would shrug his shoulders and study the barometer, for he took an interest in the meteorology, while my mother, keeping very quiet so as not to disturb him, looked at him with tender respect, but not too hard, not wishing to penetrate the mysteries of his superior mind. But my grandmother, in all weathers, even when the rain was coming down in torrents, and Francois had rushed indoors with the precious wicker armchairs so that they should not get soaked, he would see my grandmother pacing the deserted garden, lashes by the storm, pushing back her grey hair in disorder so that her brows might be more free to embile the life-giving draughts of wind and rain. She would say, at last one can breathe and would run up and down the soaking paths, too straight and symmetrical for her liking, owing to the want of any feeling for nature in the new gardener, whom my father had been asking all morning if the weather were going to improve with her keen, jerky little step regulated by the various effects brought upon her soul by the intoxication of the storm, the force of hygiene, the stupidity of my education and of symmetry in gardens, 
rather than by anxiety, for that was quite unknown to her. To save her plum-coloured skirts from the spots of mud under which it would gradually disappear, to a depth which always provided her maid with a fresh problem, and filled her with a fresh despair. When these walks of my grandmother's took place after dinner, there was one thing which never failed to bring her back to the house. That was if one of those points where the revolutions of her brought her moth-like, the sight of the lamp in the parlour where the liquors were set out on the card table. My great-aunt called out to her, Bethel, I'd come in and stop your husband from drinking brandy, or simply to tease her. She had brought so foreign a type of mind into my father's family that everyone made a joke of it. My great-aunt used to make my grandfather, who was forbidden liquors, to take just a few drops. My poor grandmother would come in and beg and implore her husband not to taste the brandy, and he would become so annoyed and swallow a few drops all the same. And she would go out again, sad and discouraged, but still smiling, for she was so humble and so sweet that her gentleness towards others and her continual subordination of herself and of her own troubles appeared on her blended in a smile which, unlike those seen on majors, majority of human faces, had no trace in it of irony, save for herself, while for all us kisses seemed to bring spring from her eyes, which could not look upon those she loved without yearning to bestow upon them passionate caresses, the torments inflicted on her by my great-aunt, the sight of my grandmother's vain entreaties, of her in weakness conquered before she begun, but still making the futile endeavour to wean my grandfather from his liquor glass. All these things of sort which in later years one can grow so well accustomed as to smile at them, to take the torment aside with a happy determination, which deludes one into the belief that it is not really tormenting. But in those days they filled me with such horror that I longed to strike my great-aunt, and yet as soon as I heard her, come in and stop your husband from drinking brandy, in my cowardice I became at once a man, and did what all we grown men do when face to face with suffering and injustice. I preferred not to see them. I ran up to the top of the house to cry by myself in a little room beside the schoolroom and beneath the roof which smelt of iris root and was scented also by a wild currant bush, which climbed up between the half-open window, intended for a more special and baser use. This room, from which in the daytime I could see as far as the keep of Rousseauville, was for a long time my place of refuge. Doubtless because it was the only room whose door I was allowed to lock. Occupation with such as required an, an enviable solitude, reading or dreaming, secret tears or paroxysms of desire, alas, I little knew that my own lack of willpower, my delicate health, and the consequent of uncertainty as to my future, weighed far more heavily on my grandmother's mind than any little breach of the rules by her husband during those endless preambulations, afternoon and evening, in which we used to see passing up and down obliquely raised towards the heavens, her handsome face, with its brown and wrinkled cheeks, which age had acquired almost the purple hue of tilled field in autumn, covered, if she were walking abroad, by a half-lifted veil, while upon them either the cold or some sad reflection invariably left the drying traces of an involuntary tear. My sole consolation, when I went upstairs for the night, 
was that my mum would come in and kiss me after I was in bed. But this good night lasted for so short a time. She went down again so soon that the moment in which I heard her climb the stairs and then caught the sound of her garden dress of blue muslin from which hung little tassels of plaited straw rustling along the double-doored corridor was for me a moment of the keenest sorrow. So much did I love that good night that I reached the stage of hoping that it would come as late as possible so as to prolong the time of respite during which Mum would not yet have appeared. Sometimes when after kissing me she opened the door to go, I longed to call her back to say, kiss me just once again. But I knew then that she would at once look displeased for the concession which she made to my wretchedness and agitation in coming up to me with this kiss of peace always annoyed my father, who thought such ceremony was absurd and she would have liked to try to introduce me to outgrow the need, the custom of having her here at all, which was a very different thing from letting the custom grow up of my asking her for an additional kiss when she was already crossing the threshold, and to see her look displeased destroyed all the sense of tranquillity she had brought me a moment before. When she bent her loving face down over my bed and held it out to me like a host for an act of com communion in which my lips might drink deeply the sense of her real presence and with, its and with it the power to sleep. But those evenings on which Mama stayed so short a time in my room were sweet indeed compared to those on which we had guests dinner, and therefore she did not come at all. Our guests were practically limited to Mr. M. Swan, who, apart from a few passing strangers, was almost the only person who ever came to the house at Combray, sometimes to a neighbourly dinner, but less frequently since his unfortunate marriage, as my family did not care to receive his wife, and sometimes, after dinner, uninvited on those evenings when as we sat in front of the house beneath a big chestnut tree and round the iron table, we heard from the far end of the garden, not the larger noisy rattle which heralded and deafened as the approach, with its very genus interminable frozen sound to any member of the household who had put it out of action by coming in without ringing, but the double peal timid oval gilded of the visitor's bell. Everyone would at once exclaim, a visitor, who in the world can it be? But they knew quite well it could only be Mr. Swan. My great-aunt, speaking in a loud voice to set an example, in a tone which she endeavoured to make sound natural, would tell the others not to whisper so that nothing could be more unpleasant for a stranger coming in, and who would to be led to think that people were saying things about him which, was not meant to hear, which he was not meant to hear. And then my grandmother would be sent out as a scout, always happy to find an excuse for an additional turn in the garden which she would utilise to remove surreptitiously as she passed the stake of a rose tree or two as to make the roses look a little more natural. As a mother might run her hand through her boy's hair after the barber had smoothed it down to make it stick out properly round his head. And there we would all stay, hanging on the words which would fall from our grandmother's lips when she brought us back her report of the enemy, as though there had been some uncertainty among a vast number of possible invaders. And then soon after my grandfather would say, I can hear Mr. Swan's voice. And indeed, one could tell him only by his voice, for it was difficult to make out his face with its arched nose and green eyes, under a high forehead fringed with fair, almost red hair, dressed in the Bressant style, because in the garden we used a little light as possible, so as not to attract mosquitoes. And I would slip away as though not going for anything in particular, to tell them to bring out the syrups, for my grandmother made a great point 
thinking it nicer of their not being allowed to seem anything out of the ordinary, which we kept for visitors only. Although a far younger man, M. Swan was very much attached to my grandfather, who had been an intimate friend in his time, of Swan's father, an excellent but eccentric man in whom the least little things would, it seemed, often check the flow of his spirits and divert the current of his thoughts. Several times in the course of a year, I would hear my grandfather tell a table of a story, which never varied, of the behaviour of M. Swan, the elder upon death of his wife, by whose bedside he had watched day and night. My grandfather had not seen him for a long time, hastened to join him at the Swan's family property on the outskirts of Combray, and managed to entice him for a moment, weeping profusely out of the death chamber, so that he should not be present when the body was laid in its coffin. They took a turn or two in the park, where there was a little sunshine. Suddenly Mr. Swan seized by my grandfather by the arm and cried, Oh, my dear friend, how fortunate we are to be walking here together on such a charming day. Don't you see how pretty they are, all these trees, my hawthorns, and my new pond, on which you have never congratulated me? You look as glum as a nightcap. Don't you feel this little breeze? Ah, whatever you may say, it's good to be alive all the same. Sweet dreams, tucking you in.